Welcome, everybody. We're joined here by with Tony Tuary and Brian Such. Brian, um, we chatted recently with you. Um, do you want to introduce yourself quickly? And then maybe, Tony, you could introduce yourself. And then, Tony, maybe you could kick off by talking about your paper of the month. Congratulations, by the way, on your oh, Belgium wow. fan paper. Um, it's, uh, a, it's a big announcement for you. And uh, it's one of the highlights of your career, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure. Brian, it's the first. far away. Okay, yeah, I'm Brian Chuck, urologist at UCLA. I run our kidney, cancer, and VA. Um, Tony, why don't you t introduce yourself and then talk a bit about your paper? Yeah, I'm Tony Schwery, oncologist, uh, you know, in Boston, involved in kidney cancer, and being promised by this podcast, Euromigos, for the past two years, the best podcast in GU oncology, promised <laughs> that my paper is the paper of the month, and so far... <laughs> I have not received anything except empty words. So I expect <laughs> you guys something a bit more substantial. There's no actual like prize. Do no donation actual for my PanMess <laughs> challenge, right? Oh, so when you put it, do that, Tony. yes, and yes, you, you or someone else. Yeah. Would you like a T-shirt, Tony? We can get you a T-shirt. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, no. Right. I'm sure. I'm sure you're gonna get me your specific XXL, which is <laughs> no, just a donation. So. Going forward, so this is a study we published actually recently and we presented uh, more than one time a collaboration with Merck and Dave McDermott, Scott Taikodi, Jaime Martin, many others, uh, Dror Michelson, where we tried for the first time to combine a VEGFTKI, cabozantinib, with the HIF2 inhibitor, the most advancing clinic, Belzutifen. Now, this is part of a larger study that has two cohorts, untreated patient, which suffered a bit from slow enrollment, although we're done now because, the, you know, hard to justify a non-IO frontline combination, although we enrolled for patient unfit for IO or patient don't want IO, and we are going to report on the first line later. But this is impatient, the one you were talking about now, a patient who received prior PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitor and did progress. Um, 52 uh, patients uh, were uh, enrolled. Your eligibility criteria, the typical and your baseline characteristic typical, two years follow-up. And after those two years follow-up, we had around 30% response rate. The combination, I would say, was tolerable with your usual expected expected side effects Tony, before from we get there, Tony, before we get yeah. there, so half the patients had had immune therapy only and half uh -huh. the patients had had immune therapy and VEGF targeted therapy. So it's, it's everyone had, had immune therapy, but some of them had had both both targets for, as, well, as well as VEGF. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So and Tony, was it, population. was it pure second line or was it just refractory? No, uh, there was a pure second line and up to three prior line total. Two, nice. Sorry, two prior lines. So you could be second or third second line. Second or third line. But okay. you should have had a PD-1 inhibitor and Somewhere. half, yeah. as Tom said, half received PD-1. The other half received VEGF base with PD-1 or VEGF only, Tom. Okay, and, and keep going, um, Tony, keep going. Sorry for interrupting. So overall, uh, response rate, as I said, 30%. When you look at tumor shrinkage, uh, you know, 1% or more, the vast majority of the patient did experience responses. And one of the figures, you know, this is, you know, there clearly, I think around 90 
uh, 2% had stable disease or a partial response. And, uh, you know, um, nothing unexpected. The PD rate was only 6%. We had one patient not available. 18 months duration of response. I think that's okay. The PFS, 14 months, was a medium follow-up longer than the PFS, so 24 months, which means that the PFS is somewhat, somewhat stable. Uh, that's in a nutshell. I can stop here. I'm sure you have questions. So, about you have questions. I mean, what, what strikes me most is that PFS, you know, response rate could be Cabo alone. You know, some of these could be TKI alone, but the, the PFS clearly stands out in this refractory setting. Do you agree? I agree. I agree. I think the one thing that wasn't emphasized in the paper, because, you know, it wasn't one of the secondary objective, and that's something Mike Atkins always asks about, uh, what happened to people, uh, patients who receive only immunotherapy versus had VEGF, mm -hmm. and there wasn't a major difference between them, because one of the theories is that look, you probably will have your activity in VEGF-naive patient. So this was not the case, at least here, 50 patients only. Um, Tony, one of the, we recently had the CABO point trial, and the CABO point study was presented by Laurence Asco, single agent CABO, in all, also in previously immune-treated patients. And there we also had a response rate, which wasn't the results weren't that. I mean, the two small trials, indirect comparisons, all of the shortcomings associated with this. The results weren't that different. I mean, the PFS wasn't 14 months. It was a bit shorter. How do you, do you think Belzutifan's adding anything here? And how sure can you be of that? Yeah, no, good question. I think more and more what we're used to from Meteor is this Cabo PFS of 7.4 months and this response rate of 17%. I can tell you that these are probably a trial that underperform in a way for two reasons. I think a lot of patients on, on the Meteor may have received two VEGF-TKI, one. I think also a response rate was center-reviewed and extremely stringent. Actually, when you look at investigator-assessed response rate on Cabo, it's 25%. It's the same as NEVO. And now we have not just Laurent's study, but we have Nizar-Tanir, uh, study uh, which had a significant number of patient post IO, uh, the one with the um, telengastat uh, uh, glutaminate inhibitor. Now we're seeing a PFS from Cabo around nine and a half months um, and response rate in the 30%. I, what I like to see is this study you're familiar with, Contact 3, which is 500 plus patient randomized. Definitely everyone is post PD-1, PDL one and patient will get Cabo or Cabo Atizo and at 60 milligram a day. I think this will be more definitive mm -hmm. in terms of what's the new target. So if you want to beat Cabo as a second-line drug, what will you post-IO target <clears throat> in terms of PFS response rate? This Tony, will be soon. Yeah. I've got to interrupt you, Tony. Because, look, linvatinib and everolimus in previously immune-treated patients, their response rate's 50%. Pay, 50 uh, sorry, 30%. Len, Len and Pembro. Sorry, Pembro. sorry, sorry Len everolimus in previously treated immune therapy. So Len everolimus done at the two dose. I think Monty presented it. Len, 18 oh, milligrams. Yeah, yeah, Len, yeah, 40 yeah. milligrams. It, response rate there, 34%. Also, really exceptional um, or great PFS data. The question I've got at the moment, 
is when we look back at first-line therapy, the original sunitinib data, and, and pazopinib in the COMPARS trial, for example, response rates were between 30 and 50%. PFS mm-hmm. was in the region of 8 to 12 months. And now we've got this second-line data, post-immune therapy, sometimes VEGF therapy as well, that looks better. Do you think the previous immune therapy is giving the subsequent VEGF targeted therapy a boost? Or do you think I'm being ridiculous? Uh, no, typically <laughs> you are. Or both. <laughs> no, I think it's both. No, I think it's possible. You know, these antibodies, besides maybe every remember, hang out for some time. Uh, so the only way is to see, I mean, in, in randomized trial, uh, you know, how you're going to show that. But it is, it is possible. Now, going back, you know, there is, in Meteor, we had like 25 patients, if you remember, Tom, that received prior PD-1 inhibitor. Uh, and you led that study in the British Journal of Cancer. My gosh, the PFS, the response rate were really higher. So it is possible, but that's what the current algorithm is, you know, PD-1 earlier and earlier. Tony, in your study that we're talking about was PD-1, did it have to be the most recent therapy or not necessarily? Yes, yes. great question. Okay. Yes. And some of the folks were, you know, had something, I would say, progressed, like some people were responded and progressed, some people progressed quickly. Sure. So, yeah. Tony, was there any difference between those patients that had seen VEGF, TKI and IO together and those patients that had only previously received immune therapy? Did the previous, were the the third line patients essentially, or the patient that received both targets, was their outcome less good or was it actually about the same? No, it was the same. We looked at quickly just at response rate. Uh, you know, I even don't know if it made it, you know, even in the paper. Uh, and, and there was no difference uh, between between them. Uh, we didn't, uh, the fastest way to look is a forest plot, but we didn't have that in the paper. The one thing I want to highlight, because I think you bring a good point that the response rate 30% is low. If you look at one of the graphs here, uh, the first, it's one of the figures, almost everybody shrink. And when you go around 20 and 30, you will see way more patient than a CR than, than those one that achieve PR. I think they have two inhibitor median time to response, at least from the phase one uh, trial, is around six to seven months. So I will not be surprised if we don't have a data cut off if this response rate going to go up. And if it goes up, I do think then it's the HIF2 contributing. And so uh, in that light, Tony, in terms of mechanism, do you think this is just additive? Do you think VEGF inhibition, receptor inhibition upregulates HIF? What do you think is going on? I think at least, uh, I don't know if it's additive because I don't know if you go to Peter Scholzer, all these concepts, um, preclinical and computational, you know, I don't think, I don't know if, if I can say it's additive because it could be that, you know, the same cell is killed by both. So it, you're, you're really wasting one and giving toxicity. But I do think that both can be better uh, than once. And how are you going to capture that is going to be, um, you know, the way to go. Um, I would love a study of Cabo versus uh, Cabo HIF2. I know this is not happening. The randomized yeah. trial now is with Lenva HIF2 mm-hmm. versus Cabo. And, you know, it's still not the same, although I would 
argue that lymphoma and CABO are more similar than CABO, let's say, and sorafenib. But, uh, you know, it would be good to have something clean like that. So, Tony, you've you said agree. so far that you, 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 you sort of you like the efficacy data, but it's a single arm. And we've talked about the caveats and the comparative data sets. And it's not clear it's how much it's adding. You've said that it's well tolerated. And I think the quality of like the, um, the adverse event profile data um, confirms there doesn't seem to be synergistic toxicity. Um, and although there are some shortcomings associated with the subsets and the accuracy and all the other bits and pieces, it's actually quite a big phase two study. Belzutifan is a drug which um, has a license. It has a license in the first line setting. I'm going to talk to Brian about that in a second. But before we do, there's a study out there called, um, which is comparing Belzutifan with Everolimus in heavily pretreated patients. It's a big randomized phase three study. We don't know when that's coming out, but we are expecting to see a positive signal versus Everolimus. Because... Do you have a feel for what that study is going to look like? And do you, do you feel we have to get an overall survival advantage or is PFS enough? Hmm. I think PFS response rate are enough because we need that drug. Uh, we need that a new class of agent uh, there. I want to see how the Everolimus treated patients are going to uh, behave and survival is. I think the study hopefully should have an overall survival benefit against Everolimus. If you remember the old, old studies of sorafenib versus STEM and the TKI versus, you know, there was an emerging signal that TKI may be better than single agent, you know, uh, sorry, TKI single agent mTOR. So I expect hopefully to have an overall survival. It's a co-primary, um, you know, endpoint. Uh, and I would like, even if there is no overall survival, I would like something going in the right direction. This should not be another hazard ratio of 1.2 with a PFS and a response benefit. It would be very disappointing. Do you think, Tony, if there's not a survival benefit, but there's a you know a meaningful PFS benefit, whatever that means, that the drug will get used or no? I, I do. I do think it will yeah. get used, but it would be disappointing that you could not beat Everolimus or as I think it yeah. would be using. I think it's safe. There are toxicities, but they're different than VEGF TKI. And then we'll see how you know Everolimus, um, you know, uh, gonna perform. Uh, I hope also, you know, Brian, 14 months was the PFS 13, 14 from the phase one, two we published in Nature Medicine. So if you go down by which should not happen even in single agent to phase three, you're still going to have seven months versus the typical yeah. four months of everolimus. But but you never know. And, uh, you know, I think the study closed some time ago. Uh, I love the fact that maybe maybe no events are happening. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> we should have it this year, next year. We'll I'm see. looking forward. Yeah. yeah. I think, Tom, Tom, do you agree with that? If there's no survival benefit that the drug will be used? Forget, let's, forget about the registration, which is important, but so I think the most important step is that PFS to show efficacy, because I don't think the future of the drug is as a single agent. And so mm -hmm. I think the proof that the drug does something in kidney cancer in a randomized trial is really important. Whether that OS signal gets diluted by subsequent therapies is complicated. When we did the original trials with mTOR inhibitors, we weren't sequencing drugs quite as much as we are now. 
and it may be possible that we rescue some of those Everolimus patients with axitinib and other agents. That may have not been the case with the Temsorolimus serafinib trial, or even, dare I say it, the Meteor trial, where cabazatinib beat Everolimus. So I think the PFS is important. OS is clearly going to be really important for widespread use and reimbursement because that's relevant. But I think the future of the drug is in combination. And Brian, we're coming to you in one second, I promise. But Tony, my last question to you, I promise. But Tony, my last question to you is, you're involved in the combination, a number of combinations in randomized trials. There's an adjuvant study. There's, Brian, you're in, both involved in a first-line triplet trial, um, with, again, with a combination. And then there's lenvatinib plus belzutifan, a randomized trial, third randomized trial looking at this. Which of those combinations do you think is most likely to be positive and change practice, Tony? Mm, you know, I think... I think the triplet with HIF2 is promising because each drug alone, Pembro, Len, and HIF2, Belzutifan has single agent activity. Uh, I think with Pembro, Len, CTLA4, and that's a trial, Brian and I, I think the jury is still out. Uh, you know, I like the combination, but you know, with, with Cosmic 313, despite, let's, let's face it, this was a positive trial, period. You know, at first interim analysis, the OS was not met. We hope it will be met in the future, but it make me, you know, a bit, you know, more hopeful toward the HIF2, especially with tolerability. But if this, if the CTLA4 arm has higher CR and the CR are maintained, which we, again, did not see in Cosmic 313, at least not, I will change my mind. But for now, it's HIF2 containing arm. And Brian, which of those three are you most excited about? Yeah, I, I agree with Tony. I think the frontline triplet, I think HIF inhibition is important early in the biology. I think it gets probably less important later as you get additional mutations in biology. Um, I'm less of a fan of the adjuvant setting. I think the biology of adjuvant recurrence is totally different. So, so you know, there's these four large randomized trials. So in, I guess within a few years, we'll have the answer to that. But I think it's triplet. Brian, um, Brian's brought you in beautifully there about early disease. And uh, I know it was a lot too long time waiting, and I apologize. Um, just tell me a bit about how Belzutifan's being used in VHL disease. It's now been approved for a little while, and, and it's even approved, would you believe, in the UK um, already. So what's going on with early Belzutifan, and why does it work so well? Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, the drug was approved in August of 2021, um, and it was after a many uh, decades uh, of effort trying to characterize the, uh, the, the VHL mutation, the disease pathway of oxygen sensing, leading to the Nobel Prize from, uh, from uh, Kalin, Semenza, and Radcliffe. Um, it, this is really a game changer in the VHL population. These patients just have you know, such a tough time. Their survival is about 10 to 20 years less than their uh, unaffected siblings. And while we've done better in managing them, it's just uh, a lot of a lot of side effects from recurrent uh, surgeries um, uh, during their lifetime. So the drug is approved. It is being um, um, uh, used more uh, often. You know, we're having patients continuing to ask about it. They're uh, starting to have, have uptake in um, uh, at many centers. Uh, we have about 10 or 12 patients on right now. Uh, and again, it's uh, alone as monotherapy. It is very well tolerated. And Brian, are you using it just as it was in the trial, which I think required at least one renal lesion, or, you know, are you using it more broadly, i.e. patients with CNS predominant disease, maybe without renal lesions? 
So, so this was, we, no one knew what was going to happen. I mean, the trial that was taken, uh, that, that um, uh, uh, was initiated, patients needed a measurable renal lesion. Uh, but they had other patients on study that had either pancreatic lesions, which were either cyst adenomas or pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, or uh, CNS or spinal hemangioblastomas. Some patients on the study did have retinal lesions. There were about 12 patients who had retinal hemangioblastomas. Very few had uh, theos or paragangliomas, which are you know very infrequent. Uh, but um, um, the FDA surprisingly gave it a very broad indication. So it is on the label for patients with renal cell, uh, a CNS, a hemangioblastoma, or a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. And it's written very broad, saying patients will need treatment, but do not need immediate surgery. I will tell you that some of the barriers is what does that mean? I've had insurers coming back and saying, well, they're, they're resectable, so you should, it's not going to get approved. They don't really understand that these are patients who will need surgery probably in the next few years, but do not need immediate surgery. Um, so really, I, I've been using in a lot of patients who don't just have renal. You know, I have a couple of people who have one or two small uh, CNS lesions. Um, I've stuck it through with patients who have very bad ocular phenotype where they have bad lesions on the optic nerve. They are going blind. Um, you know, it, 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 the, the broad indications have been very um, helpful to get this drug approved. And what have you seen in terms of response? Is it in line with the clinical data? Is this a uh, is this a, uh, the game changing drug that it looked like in the New England Journal of Medicine for these patients, or are or when you or when we translate this into the clinical setting, have the results been more modest? No, I mean so far, you know, in my you know twelve patients on study, I mean on the drug right now, they they've done very well. I mean the response right now with the pancreatic uh, lesions are probably 80 to 90%. And I, I've seen about three of them shrink really dramatically. Um, the uh, the uh, kidney and, and CNS lesions do shrink too, you know, 60% of the updated series presented at ESMO and renal and like 40 in the CNS. I am most impressed in the eyes. They stuck it in, um, you know, in like one sentence in the New England Journal publication that in, tw uh, in 12 patients, all of them had uh, improvement in their eyes. Again, it's not on the FDA label, but I've seen really dramatic improvement and patients, their vision, you know, when you see them like 2080 and other like, you know, 2020 vision, it's, it's pretty incredible that they uh, uh, can, uh, you know, report that they're so much clearer. Actually, the renal cell shrinkage and response is the lowest among everything else. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, mean, was... you, you think of it, I mean, these other tumors in the eye and in the uh, brain and spine and even the cyst adenomas in the pancreas, they're benign. So I, I tell patients those tumors are too stupid to develop resistance. So, <laughs> I mean, we do know from Rose's work that, you know, one of the mechanisms of resistance is a mutation in that HIF2 uh, uh, binding pocket. And I just don't think these benign tumors are going to, you know, be able to develop, you know, a mutation that affects the uh, binding. That's a great phrase, Brian. And I think the morbidity of those non-renal lesions is even greater to your point, right? I mean, in my limited handful of patients that I treat and in our center that, you know, Kim and Katie treat a lot of these uh, yeah, obviously, renal surgery can be morbid, but, you know, hemangioblastoma surgery and eye, eye disease is, is even more morbid. So I think the clinical impact is, is almost greater in those organs, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, when you see these patients come in and they're blind or they've had a nucleation, I mean, the type 1 VHL patients that have had, you know, there's a truncating or loss of function mutation, about 25% of patients in a couple of series have shown that they've head towards like an ocular nucleation. That's just devastating to have a yeah. patient be blind. So I've got a question for the three of you. Um, 
what we've heard today is we've heard that the response rate in late disease is probably less good than we've we see in very early disease and particularly in VHL disease. Um, it looks like, therefore, some patients, the VEGF-driven patients, respond better than those that are developing VEGF resistance. And I think that's fair. Um, although Tony's subset analysis, although it wasn't particularly robust, suggests that might not be the case. Is there a biomarker for this drug? And are we doing our best to explore that? Stunned silence on the phone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in I mean, terms I, of, yeah. in terms of you know, um, we have a good biomarker of, of uh, on-target efficacy, which is just looking at EPO levels. But um, looking, you know, most of these patients who have a VHL mutation, you know, are probably going to, you know, have some response. I think in clear cell, if you had like a, you know, a non-VHL HIP-driven tumor, I don't know how it's going to respond. I mean, usually, you know, there are other mechanisms, maybe the ELOC or TCEB1 um, um, uh, mutant tumors, maybe they'll do differently. But clearly there is a subset of VHL wild type, which who knows how they'll do. Yeah, we're working on this. I think uh, currently, you know, Brian and I remember 15, 20 years ago when we looked at VHL mutation predicting, uh, you know, responses to VEGFTKI. We're going to repeat all these experiments, but with one, you know, large blanket where we're going to do really deep sequencing of anything and everything on all the tumors, hopefully, that our industry colleague and sponsor are collecting because this is not yet in our hands outside um, outside uh, Merck and other companies developing HIF2 inhibitor. But I will tell you there is some interesting uh, finding in CCR, some of them validated other now from UT Southwestern, looking at mutation that can develop in the pocket of HIF2 as mechanism of resistance, whether acquired, whether, you know, uh, to begin with refractory at baseline. But all this gonna be looked at if we have tissue and blood, hopefully, from patient treated recently uh, with HIF2 inhibitor at baseline. We're gonna look into that. Are we gonna find something? I think because this is a, a drug that target the tumor, not just the micro tumor microenvironment like with VEGF inhibitor. I think we have a higher chance to, to find something, but I wouldn't be surprised because, uh, you know, Brian will tell, we're, we're, we're gonna combine three drugs, sometimes who knows, four drugs together. So when you reach a response rate of 100%, suddenly the enthusiasm <laughs> for a biomarker goes down. Let's hope. That yeah, was kind I... of real seminal work, 2007. There was the yes. original big three, the Bukowski, Rini, and Chueri. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna talk <laughs> about it. The OG. That's OG. Yeah, yeah I agree oh, with Tony. God. I mean, I think in in sporadic we have a ways to go and as we're combining things it obviously gets trickier but but the effort's going to be there in vhl syndrome i mean i think the response rate's so high i don't know brian if you had a biomarker would you use it i mean it, you know the response rate so high across organs as we just said I'm, I'm not sure that kind of setting really requires a biomarker especially given yeah, the tolerance I mean, I mean every pretty much every patient you know there's no progression initially so I, you know, they are occasionally now seeing on that trial, the, the initial light spark trial that they have seen some resistance uh, where the tumors are starting to grow. But pretty much everyone had stable disease or responded. I got, Brian, I got a question for you. We know the drug's well tolerated, but in, in VHL syndrome patients, they could be on it for years, if not decades, right? I mean, at least conceivably. Yeah, I mean, so far, there's been... Intermittent. Mm -hmm. yeah, so I was going to ask about intermittent therapy. therapy. 
So I, I treat a, you know, I've treated a bunch of patients with tuberous sclerosis and we give Everlimus kind of intermittently. And, you know, that's a strategy which works. They, they respond, you take them off the Everlimus and there's kind of a slow rebound, but mm -hmm. it's not like a dramatic rebound and the tumors, you know, progress. So I, I think, you know, for kidney, I, I do kind of worry about maybe some, you know, maybe some resistance, but for brain, spine, hemang um, you know, those lesions, I think it's perfectly probably reasonable to, um, take them off. Um, and I have a lot of young patients who, you know, women of childbearing age, I have three young women who are in their twenties and they want to start a family. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to cross that bridge when they get there. Yeah. In the light <laughs> spark trial, what's the longest that people have been on? I don't know from that trial. I think right now, four years from four uh, years. the ESMO update. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The ESMO update, three years, 36 months, the light spark 004. So that's the VHL uh, trial. Uh, 36 months of follow-up, but you're right, Brian, there will be patients uh, on the up to, I think there were up to, if you look at the range, there are patients four years, 48 months, and they don't develop resistance, and the PD rate is, anyone want to guess what's the PD rate? Zero. Primary PD? Zero. Primary zero, PD, yeah. zero. Zero. So zero is the PD rate. I think this is will tell us. I think it's zero. You know, yeah. So zero. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, the, now the median time to response as because this brings me back to the Belzotifan plus VHFTKI. Uh, the study I discussed here was even longer than the somatic. Um, uh, you know, it was almost twelve months. <laughs> so uh, things don't happen. Overnight. The one thing I want to just add, if you guys allow me, is the absence of hypoxia. So these are patients treated three years follow up and they're watched for hypoxia. There was, I remember on this uh, VHL study, one hypoxia that was reversed with uh, those either decrease or something. Patient wasn't taken off therapy because the hypoxia, if my memory went, but one case, that's not the case with the metastatic patient we're seeing. So that's a lot of physiology we need to go back to the drawing line why this has been terrific i can only imagine the podcast is going downhill from here if we yeah. go on any further <laughs> yeah and, and do you do you think you can get me i hope I, i'll send you the link to the donation for the penmas challenge to raise money. i'm going to get you a t-shirt to wear no no i actually <laughs> do not really want a t-shirt i i i don't want a t-shirt <laughs> You'd, You'd be very clear like about your lack of desire. Brian, perhaps yes. we'll give you a T-shirt. We'll give you Tony's T-shirt instead. Right. Yeah, give him right. two, but don't give him XL, okay, or extra small. No, it'll be medium. It'll be medium. It'll be tactfully yeah. medium. So the only XL Tony likes XL one eight four. Oh my God! No, sorry, zero nine two now. Zero nine two. Zero nine two. Gentlemen, thank you. Take care, guys. Thanks for Bye. 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 Appreciate your time.